the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another thrill-packed edition of Unite IE Radio, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the private citizen. My name is Doug Hauser. I'm with the Redlands Tea Party Patriots and the Unite IE Coalition of Conservative and Patriotic Groups, where our mission is to unite freedom-loving, America-loving Americans and magnify our strength and effectiveness in making and keeping America great, free, and prosperous. And uh, just for those of you who don't know me, uh, in my past life, I was a biomedical researcher and a teacher. I'm a published author in several different areas of biomedical research, and I've worked with young people and older people, teaching them everything from ABCs to uh, calculus and how to use electron microscopes. So that's a little bit about me, and uh, I love doing what I'm doing. And I want to introduce my first guest, which is a terrific lady. She's an Air Force veteran. She's a Redlands Tea Party regular, a strong proponent of school choice in California. She's a lecturer on the true history of the black community in America and a tireless advocate for that community and its values of family and faith. Uh, Help me welcome Ms. Sag. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine and good morning. And thank you for having me as your co-host. Okay. I'm very appreciative of being here, and the topic is very near and dear to my heart, and I look forward to giving as much information as I can. You know, I always say I like to take facts and make them heart issues, but I want people to get to the point they understand and read more, to not only read headlines, but go into the story and form their own opinions. Don't form other people's opinion based on what you read, but form your own opinions based on what you read. Absolutely, absolutely. That's good advice in uh, any walk of life, Yes, certainly. Um, we've worked a lot on the school choice issue, uh, and uh, let me say that, first of all, that my experience now has been uh, through uh, collecting signatures in Englewood and talking to uh, potential volunteers at several Juneteenth events. The African-American community absolutely loves not only the idea of school choice, but I think they really, really uh, hone in on our particular instantiation of it, which, as you know, involves education savings accounts to be funded by Prop 98 education dollars, where every child is entitled to an equal share of the money, and that money can only be used for the child's education at a private, parochial, or homeschool situation. Um, maybe you would tell us why this issue is so important and why it resonates so much in the black community. Well, let me just start off and give you a little bit of history, like I said before. Um, I actually grew up in the segregated South in the 60s under Jim Crow. So I know what it is when you had we had strong families and unwavering faith and commitment to God. Also, probably we had um, 75 to 80 percent or more of the families were traditional moms and dads. That's what made us so strong. In the last 60 years, there had been a complete change. And we've gone from moms and dads to about 80% or 85% of our families now being single moms. We have been a complete breakdown and decimated of our family units. So when I heard about school choice, I really want to get involved because I'm really trying to get our kids back into the educational zone. We are so disadvantaged uh, educationally, especially our black boys here, um, that we have 48% of our black boys here in California not graduating high school when they do their third and fourth grade level. You can't take advantage of any opportunities that are out there if you can't read and write and do simple math. So a lot of these kids end up on welfare. They end up homeless. They end up on drugs. My thing is to try to break that cycle because of all the things that we've been through since the 1800s, we knew more than anything that education was going to be the key to our success. And we not only survived, but we thrive in that environment. And we were scientists. We were mathematicians. We were inventors. And I want to get our kids back close to that. But more than anything in order to do that, we got to rebuild families. And since that's the secondary part, building a strong educational system, I think will help us rebuild families. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This, this is critical. Uh, w- what many people uh, don't realize, or maybe they do realize, is that what is a disaster for the black community is actually a disaster for the whole country. Uh, we ha- we are wasting so much human capital. I, I often say I- I'm a small D Democrat in that I believe that everybody has talent and everybody is good at something. And how many of these kids would make a great who knows what, from an architect to a zoologist, and they don't even know what an architect or a zoologist does. They're busy learning in the government-run schools, you know, about pronouns and about uh, LGBTQ and about CRT and you're a victim and you're a victimizer instead of learning the basics that they need to know. Um, so how will the school choice, in your in your mind, how will this this school choice, if we can pass this, immediately impact the black community? How how fast will that impact be felt? Well, this is not the end. It's going to be just the beginning. And if we can get this uh, these funds, which are our taxpayer funds, into the hands of these families and these kids, they now can go to the school of their choice. Well, I really like parochial schools because of our background and because we had such a strong faith and commitment to God. I think a lot of kids have lost that or have no understanding what that is. That builds strong character. So with that, we can also build up these parochial schools. But if you have someone that wants to be a scientist or a mathematician or want to get in technology, there's so many different kinds of schools there that are, have, they op- have the opportunity to do that, do that. But if you at the point that you just have to go to that one school in your neighborhood that doesn't provide you what you need, the kids just are falling off the wagon. Doug said this, and Mr. Doug has said this before. If you live in a neighborhood, and that one neighborhood you had just one restaurant, and you had to go to that one restaurant, but you looked across the street, and there was 10 or 15 restaurants, and you weren't able to go to any of those, okay? But we're stuck with that one restaurant because of your zip code. That's the same thing that happened to the kids. we got to open this up. We have to give them more opportunities and availability to go to do things that they enjoy and want to do. And when you do that, you will develop strong character. You will develop more hope. And now they have the opportunity to really expand and expand their minds. Yes. And uh, one of the things I've often pointed out is that the money goes into the education savings account only when the parent has secured an attendance at a particular school. So this is going to get the parents involved right away. In order for them to claim that $17,000, they've got to get off their duff and go out to a school and say, do you have a seat for my little Susie in in September and August for her to start coming here? Or do you have a seat for, for Joey? And once they are talking to the people at that school, what's going to happen? They're going to ask, oh, and by the way, how many of your graduates go on to college? Or how? what are the earnings potentials of your graduates five years after they get out of here? You know, or other stats. And they'll be able to compare and contrast different schools and determine what's best for their kids. The other thing is, why should all three of their kids, if a parent has three kids, go to that same school? Perhaps one kid is very good at art. One kid really loves science. One kid might be a special needs kid. Why should they all be going to the same school where they're all going to be stuck in a classroom with a variety of kids with different skills, different backgrounds, different desires, different strong and weak points, and a teacher with all the great intentions in the world is trying to deal with 30 kids, some of whom need extra help in math. Some are already for advanced math. Some of whom need help in spelling. Others are really good spellers and readers. It's very hard on that teacher. Under our plan, a parent could send one child to a science academy, one child to an art academy, one child to a parochial school, whichever is best for each child. And the schools will therefore start to specialize and cater to individual children. And with that specialization, you'll get much, much improvements in the overall education. Does, does that strike you as a, a good way to approach it? It does. And uh, just an example of this also, um, the cost sometimes is prohibited for people going to different schools of their choice. So when I looked around... Um, and start doing my study, just like my granddaughter. She goes to a wonderful parochial school. They pay about $6,000 a year. And most parochial schools like that, and even trade schools like that, usually only run six to $8,000 a year. That means you could potentially have eleven, ten thousand, nine thousand dollars $10,000, $9,000 left over that builds up in that account. 
Right now, she's four. She's let, already reading and writing. Let, let me interrupt you just to explain to people mm-hmm. that in the plan that is being put forward, mm-hmm. whatever money is not spent out of the account in any particular year remains in the account. Mm-hmm. This is not a voucher plan. This is a savings account. So that money accumulates and accumulates, and frequently high school is more expensive, so you've accumulated money for the more expensive high school, and whatever's left over when they graduate is available for college or accredited vocational mm-hmm. training. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to make that clear. So you're talking about a school that costs $6,000. That child, by the time they get out of 12th grade, they're going to have over $100,000 accumulated for college. And so I think you can go to pretty much any school, especially the state schools and stuff, with that money and have your education paid for. Uh, You can have your room and board paid for. Anything regarding education, that will already be paid for. So you don't have to worry about taking all those student loans and the fight we're having right now, paying all that money back that kids have to pay back now. Because now you already have your money saved up in your account. And you could potentially have $120,000, $130,000 left over at that period of time in your own education educational savings account. So I think it has been a great plan. It's one you parents could really get behind and they can really see a difference in their child when they go to a place that they really enjoy, that they're really being educated and something that gives them the opportunity to expand their mind and expand their educational levels and really get into something they enjoy doing. Right. And as I said, this is vital not only for minority communities, but this is vital for our entire country. You can bet your bottom dollar that China and India and our competitors on the world stage, they are educating every child to the maximum ability they can. They are not leaving anybody behind. They are not wasting any minds. They do not know, just like we do not know, who is going to be the one who cures cancer 10 years from now, who is going to be the one who discovers the new energy source from now or solves any of the numerous problems and so we need all minds on deck yeah, that's my phrase to uh take to, to move this country forward so uh you're right mr doug and um what i hear sometimes uh, that people say well what is um you were going to hurt the public school system and my answer is this if the public school system was doing what they're supposed to be doing we would not be having this conversation or be in this predicament that's right. I would be uh, finishing my novel and <laughs> traveling around the country visiting national parks while, while writing and things of that nature. Okay, so uh, we're up against a break here. So let's hear from Ed Hoffman of United American Mortgage, the place to go for your real estate needs. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage and host of the main event, Heard Weekends, right here on AM590 The Answer. Think about this. Your mortgage rate is at 3%, but your car loan is now at 10 or 11%. Over the past year, the average car payment has risen from $400 to $800. Rates on your credit cards have risen from an average of 14% up to 20% and higher. And across the country, credit card balances are higher now than they were before COVID. HELOCs are now at 10%. You don't want to touch your low-rate mortgage, but you're paying through the nose on all of your other debts, and it's hard to make ends meet. Solution? Do a cash-out refinance and wrap all your debt together on your house now and lower all your payments. Then, when the rates really drop next year, you can do a rate and term refinance when rates are really low and not have to pay the cash-out refinance fees to do it. If this idea makes you curious, call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the United American Mortgage logo. Ed Hoffman, NMLS ID number 9921. United American Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID number 1942. United American Mortgage Corporation is an equal housing lender and licensed by the California Department of Real Estate. AM 590, the answer. Well, welcome back. I'm Doug Hauser, and I'm here with my guest, Ms. Sag, an advocate for the black community and a tireless worker for school choice and a bunch of other issues. So um, uh, let's go to uh, an overall little bit of a, a political overarch here. Uh, obviously, most people will know that the uh, the black community has supported the Democrats for several decades now, going back to Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Um, but there is evidence that, uh, you know, the transgender issues and and economic issues and, you know, even generally social issues that the African-American community is perhaps the most conservative part of the Democratic coalition and that more and more of them are getting fed up with, you know, border crises and inflation and, th- and these issues and they're beginning to see the advantages of the conservative viewpoint of self-reliance, of limited government, of good education systems, of strong families. Um, my question would be, how can conservatives 
uh, I don't want to use the word exploit this, but how can conservatives expand on this trend and reach out to the to the black community in ways that will uh, that will encourage them to be able to leave the quote unquote Democrat plantation behind? Well, Mr. Doug. Um it all starts out, first of all, with just giving them a good history. And what happens is that people don't know their history anymore. So um, when I was growing up, we did. History was a big part of our life. And like I said before, I not only read about it, but I lived it. So we were always conservative because we had strong traditional families. But the Democrats owned that message, and we've never taken that message back. From the 1800s on, um, the, fourth, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, Republicans all voted for that. That was to help slaves and help black people. Get. Democrats voted against it. The Democrats were the one that put in the black, uh, the black code laws. The Democrats are the one that tried to stop you from uh, voting. Anytime you hear about Jim Crow, you know, 2.0, but they don't want to talk about Jim Crow 1.0, <laughs> which they instituted, okay, right. which stopped us, tried to stop from voting. And when people back in the day tried to vote, um, they would have to walk sometimes 10, 15 miles just to vote. When they get there, they would tell them, well, uh, cite the most uh, difficult parts of the Constitution. Or if they got that right, um, how many um, jelly beans are in that bar? If they got that right, um, well, how many um, suds, uh, how much suds are on that uh, soap dish? And when they did all that, they got home. You may have a, a, a beating or a lynching waiting for you. Okay, that's the type of thing they had to deal with, and that was a Democratic Party that put blacks in that situation. Okay, let me let me just insert here: how many people know that the NRA, the National Rifle Association, was originally formed to help black communities defend themselves against the Ku Klux Klan, which was the Democrat militia at the time that Mm -hmm. suppressed black people in every aspect, uh, politically, economically, socially, every way. And the NRA was formed to give them their gun rights so they could defend themselves. Yeah. And also, um, people don't know either because they don't know their history. Uh, And President Lincoln was not a Democrat. He was a Republican. Another thing, the GOP party, Grand Ole Party, which people, there's a negative connotation with that, that was started as an anti-slavery party, specifically to help black people and stuff um, to get out of those situations with slavery. Also, your KKK members, that was also started by Democratic faction. But the thing over the years that they have owned the message and then they Democrat and Republicans kind of disengage. We have to engage back. And one other big thing that happened to us back in like the 60s and 70s under LBJ, and he hated black people with a passion that every fibers his, his heart. And what he knew that blacks were going to be able during that period of time, get the vote, okay? He was very afraid that now they're going to take over where white people were at because they were very um, um, aggressive at that time involved with jobs and businesses and farms and homes and everything. So he started this, uh, wanted to do the Civil Rights Act, which they passed. But along with that, he said, well, let's do that, but I'm going to bring in a little something extra just to make blacks keep voting for us. So that's how all the great society and the welfare programs came in. So, But this is the thing, black people, which you don't know. And what he said is in his writing. They said, in order for you to get this money, ladies, and before that period of time, black people wouldn't take a penny from anybody. Before you get this money, okay, the black man has to leave or the dad has to leave the home. We took the money and sold our souls for 30 pieces of silver. That really started the massive breakdown of our family unit. And Joe Biden was a part of that also. And we have never recovered. We're at the point now that eight to 9,000 kids our black children are killing themselves every year. We're having whole generations just wiped out. Nobody addresses it. Your Democratic Party doesn't address it. The only thing that becomes important is if a white man kills a black man or something like that, they bring it up. Other than that, they let all this mass killings go on in our black communities, and they never say a word. So we have to get people educated to what's going on. The Republican Party has to get out there and engage these communities like I do, giving these talks all the time. And when they start hearing from that, they'll open their eyes, but they never hear from you. They only hear one side. They got to hear the other side. Right. Uh, if you ever get a chance to hear Ms. Ashley's talk on this subject, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Highly, highly recommended for anybody to see. And she starts off with a picture saying, showing 
a typical black family circa 1950 or so, and there's a father and a mother and two or three kids, and the father's wearing a bow tie, and the mother's there, and the children are well-dressed, and they're smiling at the camera, and then she shows you a picture, typical black family circa 2010, and it's a mother and three children, and no father in the picture, and one baby's a little baby on the arm, and who knows, maybe, you know, different fathers, but the father is not around, and you can look at that and you can go, this is an absolute disaster for our country. We know, I just heard today, the stat that in prisons, 80% of the people in prison grew up in families with no father in the house. This is a disaster. This is, besides the cost of of housing inmates, the lost human capital is absolutely unbelievable. As as Ms. Ashley said, these kids should be growing up to be inventors, creators, scientists. Did you know, I don't know if you know this, Ms. Ashley, when I travel around in school choice, when I see families with little children who are in school, I ask them, what's your favorite subject? And my joke is, you can't say recess or lunch, because that's what kids (laughs) like to say. The number one answer I get, by far, it's more than half of all the kids say math is their favorite subject in that grade. And I go, wow. Because when you get to 11th or 12th grade, if you ask them what their favorite subject is, it's not going to be math anymore. So something is going wrong. These kids should be growing up to be computer jocks and inventors and scientists and mathematicians, things that propel the entire nation's economy, that create industries, that that employ more people, that create new manufacturing techniques um, that are being stolen from us by our competitors. And so it has to do with the teaching. There's something going wrong. Kids are naturally drawn to science and math and nature and their love of those things, and we've got to encourage that. And school choice is hopefully the way to do that. And in history, just going back a little bit, that's who we were, what I said before. So if you Google um, black inventors or whatever from the 1800s on, you will see literally thousands of inventions that we uh, had in this country with Africans. And a lot of those people were just coming out of slavery. How did they do that with the limited education that they supposedly had? But you learned at home, you learned at schoolhouse, you being not knowledgeable was not was it was uh, not acceptable? Okay, you had to read, you had to understand, you had to understand the language. Language it was pushed. If you look at the NASA program, and they always, if you saw the movie Hidden Figures, there with Kathleen Johnson, okay, and the ladies, all the things they had to go through, they were called the human computers for a reason. And you wouldn't have the space program that you have right now. Wouldn't been for her because uh, the astronaut said, listen, I'm not going up in space until that what black woman tells me that it's okay. She does trajectory <laughs> for that. So what happened with that, too? Now, Kathleen Johnson, they didn't have computers back day. She took a blackboard with a piece of chalk and made those mathematicians um, examples that she had to put forward, whatever. No computer, no calculator. So it's in our DNA with all children, not just with black children, whatever. But we've been kind of pushed that aside. we got to get back those strong educational standards. And we used to thrive in that environment. Kids are just fascinated and, and just bring in so much joy in their lives when they bring that hope back. And you see the twinkle in their eyes when they see science and mathematicians and things in space and stuff and things they can create. And all that's available to them with a solid education. But if you can't read and write and do simple math, you can't take advantage of any of those opportunities. Absolutely. And I'm going to stick in a, a shameless plug. We are friends with a gentleman named Bill Montgomery, mm-hmm. who is the nephew, I believe, of Miss Johnson or cousin mm-hmm. of Miss Johnson. And he has an organization called Hidden Pioneers Correct. that he is trying to bring uh especially transportation technology as an introduction to technology back to grade schools, junior, middle school, and high school. And uh, I believe that's his website is Mm hiddenpioneers.com. Highly recommend it to anybody to go there and see what you can do to to help his cause um, because education is, as I've often said, the one issue that can basically fix every other issue, whether you're interested in crime, homelessness, Mm -hmm. the environment, whatever it may be, uh, on Entrepreneurship, a well-educated population is going to get you there faster and cheaper than, than any government program ever could. Programs like his, 
and other people I've talked to also, they're having the hardest time getting these programs into schools. They actually have been turned down, whatever. This will really enhance what their kids are doing. And all across the board, these school districts are saying no. Why is that? Because they still want complete control. They want to indoctrinate you. They don't want you to be able to think for yourselves. We'll do all the thinking for you, and don't worry about it, okay? And that's what's happening now. Parents, 50 years ago, we turned over the education of our kids to the government. And that's what happened. When you did that, you see what happened. These kids are your responsibility first. They're not the government responsibility. And what happened is, is that people need to stand up and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore, and we're going to take the education our kids back. Absolutely. And, and when parents do that, we're going to see a, a change in the course of the country. Uh, you know, kids are the future. It's cliche to say it, but it's absolutely true. So thank you so, so much for being here. This was just terrific. I wish we had more time because uh, I know you and I could, uh, we, we can talk for, for yes, hours and can. hours on this topic. Which we have on occasion. <laughs> but uh, we, we're up against a break here. So we'll be back in a little while. Hang in there and come back to hear some more. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage and host of the main event, Heard Weekends, right here on AM590 The Answer. Think about this. Your mortgage rate is at 3%, but your car loan is now at 10 or 11%. Over the past year, the average car payment has risen from $400 to $800. Rates on your credit cards have risen from an average of 14% up to 20% and higher. And across the country, credit card balances are higher now than they were before COVID. HELOCs are now at 10%. You don't want to touch your low-rate mortgage, but you're paying through the nose on all of your other debts, and it's hard to make ends meet. Solution, do a cash-out refinance and wrap all your debt together on your house now and lower all your payments. Then when the rates really drop next year, you can do a rate and term refinance when rates are really low and not have to pay the cash-out refinance fees to do it. If this idea makes you curious, call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020 or go to edhoffman.net and click on the United American Mortgage logo. Ed Hoffman, NMLS ID number 9921, United American Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID number 1942. United American Mortgage Corporation is an equal housing lender and licensed by the California Department of Real Estate. AM 590, the answer. Welcome back to another edition of Unite IE Radio, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the private citizen. My name is Doug Hauser. I'm with the Redlands Tea Party Patriots and Unite IE Coalition of Conservative and Patriot Groups. I'm also, as my friends know, a retired scientist and teacher, and uh, I can talk a lot on almost any subject you would care to name. But with me, my special guest, and I hope I can call him my friend, is Jonathan Zackerson, who is from Placer County, right near Sacramento, almost the heart of the beast, as it were. And he was involved. I met him through the school choice issue when we're trying to get our statewide initiative passed that we just uh, were talking about in our second attempt here. And uh, so, but Jonathan's involved in several issues involving education and involving children and helping children and helping to improve the education system. So uh, why don't you first tell us about yourself, Jonathan? Well, thank you. Uh, first, thank you for having me. And, and Doug, yes, I, I, I do consider you a friend. You're a good friend. I appreciate that. I, I, um, I've enjoyed getting to know you over uh, the last couple of years. Um, yeah, so as you said, I'm in Placer County. Uh, I have three children, uh, one that is now graduated high school, one that's in high school, and a 14-month-old. Wow, that's um, quite yeah. the range there. <laughs> quite the range. We, what, we, what happened know, in the meantime? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, you know, during COVID, right, we realized uh, how crazy things were. And my wife and I uh, decided we need to, you know, in order to fix California, we needed to make more voters. Okay. And so. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right. so much fun to make new voters. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And then, and then, and then you have, uh, he's such a great kid too. So uh, I love it. Um, but yeah, so when, you know, uh, I got involved uh, pretty much when schools shut down. I mean, I was very passionate about that. Uh, right away, I wanted schools to open, and I did everything that I could locally uh, to try to have that happen. Um, we have some, you know, I'm Placer County is a great place to live, and we have some, you know, a lot of good elected officials here, uh, but their hands were tied, frankly, um, from the governor's office, and that's ultimately what I learned. And so, in June of 2020, I founded Reopen California Schools. Um, at that time, I, I naively thought we'd just hold a big rally at the Capitol, Newsom will listen to us, and he'll reopen our schools. Uh, and uh, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, I met some great folks in that process, and we just continued to build on that. And and as we know, in California, schools were closed the longest, and so we had to keep fighting the longest. And, and even after schools were closed, we had to fight the mask mandates, and, and we had the issues with the COVID-19 vaccine mandates uh, at school. And, and so we had to fight all of that in the process, 
And now we're at a point where, uh, you know, we realized uh, we, we can't lose that organization because if we do, uh, we won't be able to fight everything that's happening in California. So we formed, uh, last summer, we formed Students First California. So it's a 50C4, um, if I'm saying that correctly. It's a nonprofit, the C4 organization, uh, not a C3. Uh, and that, that, is most, that is focusing on education policy. Uh, during that same time frame, uh, we, we also formed a connected political action committee so that we can raise funds uh, and fund uh, candidates that support our, our issues to make sure that uh, kids uh, have have those choices, good good quality curriculum. Uh, they don't have to worry about mandates when, when school starts um, and that they don't have to really kind of fight back on what's happening at the legislative level, um, at, but we can do that at the local level, just like we're seeing in the news. So uh, we were able to fund uh, uh, we funded, I think, 21 candidates. We were able to endorse more than that. Uh, but ultimately, we had a 92% success rate. Wow. Um, only two of the candidates that we that we funded uh, did not uh, win their elections. And uh, those that did lose, they barely lost. Um, and they lost to incumbents. And well, so, first of all, yeah. you, you need to write a book or a pamphlet or something <laughs> that is an instruction manual for the rest of us so we can uh, emulate that. Because we certainly need that here in Southern California, probably more than you needed it up there. <laughs> yeah, and there were some groups in Southern California, I think in East County, San Diego, uh, they kind of had their own group that did something similar. Uh, El Dorado County had their own group that did something similar um, with you know, fairly similar success rates. And so it was kind of taking with those local groups and be able to activate and work together to, uh, to find candidates. I mean, that's the, that's the number one issue, right? You have to mm -hmm. be able to find a quality candidate to run. So you have to find those candidates, get them to run, make sure they're not running against, you know, uh, other good candidates uh, and work together uh, so that you can best apply your resources to get those good school board candidates elected. And that's what we did and, and continue to, we would plan on doing that in the, the next cycle as well. Um, is there a place where people can go to support uh, Students First California and get more information about that organization? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so if you want to visit uh, our uh, social media is probably the best place to go. So it's either Twitter or Facebook um, or even Instagram. It's just at Students First CA. Okay, terrific. Yep. So I'm going to write that down, and I encourage everybody to do that. Um, so let's move from the school boards, as important as it is. <laughs> In fact, it was very funny. About 10 years ago, I saw um, Colonel uh, Colonel West uh, ask a question of an audience, what, what's the most important elective office in the United States? And people were saying, oh, the president, all oh, senators, this, that, the other. And he ended up saying, it's actually school boards. And at the time, that got kind of a laugh and a shocked response. But I think people see now how important school boards are, how they immediately impact, directly impact what is happening in all our communities all across the country. Um, so, so that is really, really important. Uh, I understand that you are involved in several ballot initiatives. Uh, that you're trying to advance uh, to the ballot in uh, 2024. Uh, would you tell us about those? They're, that also involve children and education. So would you tell us about those? Yeah, definitely. This is really exciting. Um, so we Students First California uh, recognized a problem and said, you know what? Uh, these issues that we're seeing are uh, very important. Uh, they're hurting our kids. And most people agree with, agree with these issues. Mm -hmm. And so we formed a, 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 a primary, we sponsored a, a primary committee, a primary ballot initiative committee. So it's only focused on ballot initiatives and it's focused on these three initiatives that we're, that we want to advance. Uh, the first initiative uh, would make sure that if a child uh, expresses interest to transition at school, that the school notifies the parents, right? Yeah. Right. And, what, and the second, what a shocking thought. <laughs> right? Who, who yeah. would have thought that you'd need a law to force the schools to tell the parents something so important in the child's life, whether you're whether you're for this process or against this process, how could anybody deny that bringing the parents in and making sure the family all are on the same page and know what's going on within their family is not of vital importance? This the, the idea that anything else could could be the case is is absolutely <laughs> insane. But we no, need yeah. a law to enforce what sh what has been for hundreds of years common sense. Right, and and this stems uh, back to twenty thirteen when AB 1266 was passed. Now, AB 1266, and that's important on the next issue we have, but 1266, all it says is that schools must allow students to use play in sports and use the bathroom 
that is consistent with their gender identity. That's what that law says. For some reason, the California Department of Education came up with this guidance that that actually means um, you actually can't tell the parents if the if the student does, doesn't want you to. You can encourage it, but you cannot – if the student says – you know, if it's a girl and she she tells the school, "I'm a boy. I want to go by this boy name and these these uh, he him." And I oh, by the way, I don't want you to tell my parents because uh, I'm not sure what they'll think. The school the policy is that the the school does not tell uh, the school district. Now that's not law. They don't have to follow that. And in fact, uh, going on um, uh, right now, there's there's a, efforts for certain school districts uh, to actually change their policy to notify the parents. So that would, but that can be done only at a local level. This bill would require schools across the state notify parents. And so it really is able to impact everybody and help students across California. Wow. And the idea that, that a law that says the child must be allowed to do a certain thing means you are not allowed to tell the parents about that certain thing <laughs> that that again that, that's quite a, a logical stretch to make yeah. you know yeah. um yes. just insane i mean we know that uh schools for example to to give them some of their due that that is the number one place where child abuse and problems like that are spotted is spotted by teachers a kid comes to school and they're either constantly depressed or they have bruises or anything of that nature and the school investigates and this is how a lot of child abuse is actually uncovered so that's that's vitally important. But there's an immense difference between suspecting that something is wrong at home because of evidence, because of a child's attitude, the child's coming to school and falling asleep all the time or they're they're exhausted or or like I say, or even physical bruises. And you that's evidence that there's some wrongdoing is actually occurring from that to make the jump to, well, if we tell the parents they might do something that we don't like them to do, that that's a huge and it seems to me a grossly unconstitutional uh, presumption. Yes. It's it's prior restraint and just putting the judgment of the teachers ahead of the judgment of the parents uh, without any evidence to do so. So, yeah, I, I would totally support that. I'm sure that, you know, 90% of parents would, would support this idea and the tiny fraction of parents who might abuse their kid because their kid is confused about something uh, of this nature uh, it should not be reason for schools to become completely autonomous and independent of the parents and do whatever the, mm, they want to do with those yes. kids. That, that's correct. Just, that's correct. Crazy. And if there really is suspected abuse... Uh, this doesn't change any of those policies Correct. or mandated reporting procedures that, that we have in place today. Correct. Right? If something so, is so, already going on, if the school has evidence that that parent is beating that child or working the child at night or or uh, any other kind of uh, uh, physical or mental abuse, yes, they still proceed to, to follow the law and, uh, you know, let's punish people who need to be punished. No question about exactly. that. Exactly. Yep, and in this case is very relevant. Uh, this particular one, uh, for those who've been following, uh, there's a situation up in Chico. Um, th there's been several cases, but this one in Chico, uh, where an 11 year old girl, um, her do her grandfather passed away, and so her mom consented and said, "Okay, yes, go ahead and uh, have grief counseling at school." Uh, apparently, at some point during those conversations with the grief counselor, uh, her daughter said, "I think I might be a boy." That counselor then went to the, the student's teachers, told all of the teachers that, that so-and-so is actually now a boy, this is his new name, and we're not going to tell the parents. This went on for, a, 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 I think, a couple of months before the mom found out um, and found out through the grandmother uh, that this was happening. And, uh, and, and, and at that point, at that point, pulled it. And so uh, it was uh, very important that, that that lawsuit that just happened for that was thrown out. And um, they're going to appeal it, but this this makes this issue that we want to pass even more pressing. Wait, would you would you clarify that? So the parents sued the school district, and the lawsuit was thrown out. Yep, yep. Uh, Harmy Dillon's uh, firm uh, was part of that, uh, and the judge tossed out the lawsuit. Now they will be appealing, so there's a long process. Okay. But who knows what's going to happen? And if we pass this law, uh, then we would be able to. Uh, basically make the whole argument moot and just make sure it's law across the state. Well, that that is horrifying that a court would say that a school has priority over the parents in such an intimate uh, family issue um, without any evidence of the parents doing any kind of wrongdoing at all. Uh, that That's just horrifying. Uh, well, we're up against a break. So 
hold in there. Please listen to our sponsor and come back to hear more about uh, Jonathan Zacherson's uh, initiatives for the state of California. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage and host of the main event, Heard Weekends, right here on AM590 The Answer. Think about this. Your mortgage rate is at 3%, but your car loan is now at 10 or 11%. Over the past year, the average car payment has risen from $400 to $800. Rates on your credit cards have risen from an average of 14% up to 20% and higher. And across the country, credit card balances are higher now than they were before COVID. HELOCs are now at 10%. You don't want to touch your low-rate mortgage, but you're paying through the nose on all of your other debts, and it's hard to make ends meet. Solution? Do a cash-out refinance and wrap all your debt together on your house now and lower all your payments. Then, when the rates really drop next year, you can do a rate and term refinance when rates are really low and not have to pay the cash-out refinance fees to do it. If this idea makes you curious, call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the United American Mortgage logo. Ed Hoffman, NMLS ID number 9921. United American Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID number 1942. United American Mortgage Corporation is an equal housing lender and licensed by the California Department of Real Estate. AM 590, the answer. Welcome back to the Unite IE radio show, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the private citizen. I'm Doug Hauser of the Redlands Tea Party Patriots and Unite IE Coalition, and I'm here with my special guest, Jonathan Zacherson from Placer County, who is proponing, propounding uh, several uh, ballot initiatives to help children in our state and help the educational system to improve because education is the one issue that can basically fix every other issue. This is this is absolutely vital. So you, we were just talking about a case where the student in school, the child had expressed uh, certain transgender desires or whatever, and the school kept it secret from the parents, and the parents sued, and a court threw the case out. Uh, would you explain why the court threw that case out? What was the reasoning there? Yeah, it's pretty absurd, especially since this is we're talking about an 11-year-old here. Uh, but though no. the justification for the, the judge throwing out the case uh, was that this was a political decision. This wasn't, uh, you know, that the school district had, you know, a responsibility to make determinations of, of keeping kids safe and what they thought was important, just as parents do, and, and that therefore it needs to be settled. Um, you know, in the political discussion or legislative uh, situation, not in the courts. Wow. So absolutely horrifying. Uh, essentially, they said the school and the parents are on equal footing as far as raising the child, in spite of there being no evidence of any wrongdoing by the parents. Th- th- this is absolutely horrifying and, and laying the groundwork for an absolutely totalitarian uh, Orwellian situation that oh, we're facing definitely. in the future. Um, so uh, would you tell us about the uh, the next uh, initiative that you've got going? To me, that one yeah. that one is is a no brainer. The parents, the, the school <laughs> has to tell the parents what's going on in the school <laughs> as yep. far as their child is concerned that, that that's just such common sense it's amazing that it needs a law so what, what is the next one yeah the next one i think you'll find is a no-brainer too uh this one would make sure that in competitive athletics for you know girls competitive athletics at school uh is for girls right biological <laughs> sex right. right so uh i don't think that's <laughs> that controversial either uh, that we make sure that our, our our girls who are playing sports really have a, f- a fair opportunity and and do not compete against biological boys. Right. So after all the effort of advancing women's sports and the tremendous success that women athletes have had, both you know in, in their own lives and sort of on the world stage as well, so now they're gonna they let men compete against the women. It's it's ultimately it, it, it's just so ridiculous and ultimately self defeating. Uh, it, it's just amazing that anybody could support that idea. As far as the idea that that transgender athletes need to compete, that's fine. Why can't they compete against each other? And that would be fair, you know. Um, if, yeah. if there's a if there's a disadvantage for the swimmer who went from being a man to a woman to compete against men, okay, so have him compete against other men who have transitioned to women, and you'd have a fair competition. Who knows? I, I might even tune in to, to watch that. You know, <laughs> it might be interesting. It's certainly a lot more entertaining than watch one guy uh, lap the entire pool full of women. You know? No, definitely, and and, and to be and to, be, to specify, this actually uh, is agnostic to men's sports. So, uh, what very well could happen is, right, uh, a, a biological male uh, who who says that he is female uh, would still be able to compete in the male sports, 
right? And if, and okay. if the schools wanted to create up a third category, uh, they would be able to. This this bill specifies specifically when it comes to women's sports and to make sure that they that there's fairness in, in women's sports, which is is the intent behind a, a lot of the law today. Uh, is that they have to be based off biological sex, and and it's really interesting that when you read this uh, code, this section in the education code, um, it's called the sex. It's called the Equity and uh, or the Sex Equity and Education Act, I believe. And it, in when you read all of this language in there, now mind you, it was from the '90s and early 2000s, most of it. It reads very much like the intent of what we understand with Title IX, and that is basically to help women's sports and make sure they have the funding, make sure they have the access. And and then what time came in 2013 and then later in 2018, just two paragraphs were added to this whole code that just redefined essentially what everything was stood for in that act. And that was that you can pick sports and bathrooms that are based off of your gender identity, and that said that gender identity is the same thing as sex. When it applies to the rest of this stuff that that's incredible because they contradict themselves because then they they'll say that uh, gender identity, you know, is it's completely independent from sex. Right. Which we've heard advocates for that side say. But then they turn around and say, well, the law, which says it has to be segregated by sex or the sexes have to get equal uh, equal treatment. Well, no, that re- that pertains to gender identity. So they yeah. want to have it both ways. So gender identity is co- totally divorced from sex when they want it to be, and it's totally coincident with sex when they want it to be. And, yep, yep, exactly. This would this would bring back those protections uh, by repealing those two provisions and adding a paragraph or two that that specifically talked about. Um, uh, making sure that we want to protect girls' sports. Exactly, exactly. And like I say, anybody who we we look at the success of women's soccer teams and women swimmers and you know play players on the international stage, we want women's sports. I, I personally yeah. find women's golf to be more entertaining watching than men's golf because the men are just too good. It's just ridiculous, and I, I'm so jealous when I watch them hit the ball 300 yards and sing 50 foot putts. And the women I can identify with much more. You know, they're <laughs> They're, I'm not as good as them, but but at least it's sort of on my level. And so I enjoy watching women's golf more than watching the men's golf. And if you had a whole bunch of men suddenly playing the women's golf, that, that would deprive me of, of one of my pleasures of life. <laughs> um, well, I think you make a great point with that, right? Is that, you know, you as an average golf player, just um, maybe, I don't know, maybe recreational golf player, hopefully I'm not insulting you with that, uh, yeah, you know, or, or you know, have a much kind. better chance of beating a professional uh, right, and that's what we see all the time is that the average athlete, uh, or you know, someone an average athlete, in whatever category, all of a sudden becomes excels in the top in the performance when they switch over to women. Right, right, and and it never works the other way around. Yeah, there are no yeah. women transgendering to men who are suddenly competing in the NFL or competing in the NBA or competing on the men's Olympic team. It just doesn't happen, other than uh, maybe equestrian events or uh, yeah. or motorsports where women obviously do compete on an equal level with men. Okay, so what's a what's the third one? Yeah, the third one uh, is very important as well. Uh, and this would, uh, for those under 18, uh, it would no longer allow uh, cr- cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, uh, mastectomies, and genital surgeries. Uh, it's important that our kids, uh, they cannot consent to this when they're under 18, uh, that we need to protect their reproductive health and their their future sexual health as they grow into adults um, by making sure that they, they can't make these decisions until they're older. And one of the reasons this is necessary is that California is becoming a a, a, a teen trans sanctuary state, where you know even though there might be other laws on, on the books in other states, uh, kids can come here and have this done. They can run away from home, become uh, wards of the state, and then get it done on um, a taxpayer uh, expense. And wow. and so it's important that we uh, make sure that that we pa- that pass this to pre- prevent that. And and then two, it protects the parents. In many cases, the parents are coerced and told that there's no other way. And if you don't do this for your kid, they might go into the foster system, which has happened in California already. And so adding these safeguards in place will protect kids from from making, you know, very significant decisions about their reproductive health and potentially sterilizing them before uh, they turn 18. 
um, and, and, and really having damage to them, and then also add those protections to the parents so they, they, they have that safeguard and have time to think about this and digest this until their child is 18. Okay, I, I absolutely support that. Um, I, I think, again, I think that's common sense, but that one I anticipate being sort of the most quote-unquote controversial of the batch. And uh, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Um, what if somebody say to you, wait a second, the kid has already undergone counseling and the parents or the custodial parent is okay with this decision. Why should the government step in and prevent this from happening? What what, uh, what would you say to a person who, uh, who had that kind of view, which, which I'm sure a lot of people would say, if it's okay with the parents, then we shouldn't interfere with them. Well, what would be your answer to that? Well, you know, I, there are several cases, right? And generally, that's the philosophy that you have, and, and parental rights are incredibly important, um, and that's what we're advocating for. Um, there are certain circumstances, right, that we know that we just, they don't, you don't have complete, right? You, you don't have the ability to abuse children. Uh, you don't have the ability to, uh, in this particular case, sterilize them and prevent them from being able to have children. Um, and the other aspect, which I tried, to, which I mentioned right after, was in many cases the parents don't have the choice; they're being coerced into making mm-hmm. these decisions. They're basically says, "You sign this paper, or else you know you might lose custody. Sign this paper, or else your 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 daughter that's that's identifying as a boy is going to kill himself. Wow. And if you don't do this, you're responsible." And so parents feel lost; they don't have that backstop; I, they don't have that support. I understand that to some degree. That's already happened, wasn't there? Or didn't they pass a law? The Sacramento pass a law that. If there's an argument over custody between divorcing parents, preference will be given to the parent who uh, is on in favor of the child's sexual transition. Uh, yes. Was that? Yes. Was that? There is. So that it, is that's a government coercion. That's not even an unofficial coercion. That's a government coercion. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's really what we need to stop. And so that bill is making its way through the legislature right now. We do hope that's not signed into law, but that law would just codify what's happening today, right? Judges are already making that discretion. There's a situation where uh, this father, he uh, he hasn't, uh, he, he didn't realize actually this was happened. He just got a bill from his insurance company for $200,000. And he's like, what's going on here? And realized uh, that his child was receiving uh, hormone therapy. Wow. Or the opposite. So it's all been kept secret from him, but he's got to pay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I guess he had insurance, so the insurance probably covered it. I think that was a gross charge on that. So, but, but nonetheless, yeah, his insurance was providing this care because the, the, you know, they had dual custody and they eventually he fought this and, and he lost custody. Oh, because yeah, he, yeah. he he was okay with the the affirmation side, right? I'll I'll go with it. I'll support my child, but didn't want the I don't think wanted the the medical procedures done. Lost complete custody and, wow. and hasn't been able to hasn't seen his kid for two years. Oh, tragic, tragic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure ninety to ninety nine percent of our listeners uh, support all three of these initiatives. Uh, what can they do to help you? Yeah. So step one is go to our website, uh, protectkidsca.com. Uh, go ahead and sign up so you can stay informed of these these issues and when we're, the petitions will be ready for you to sign. And if you can contribute in any way, there's a donation link. Uh, that will be helpful in, in covering the expenses to get these on the ballot. Okay, that's protectkidsca.com. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for being here, but also for all you're doing to help children and to help the state of California. Uh, that's all we have time for today. This is Doug Hauser for Unite IE Radio, and please be sure to tune in next week. AM 590, the answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.